Amen. Good morning. My name is Jan. I'm one of the pastors. Glad you're here. I want to start today with two questions. Question number one, on a scale of one to ten, how important is good communication? Ten, awesome. Yeah, and you, if you want, you can just use your fingers. Okay. So question number two, uh, what percentage of the problems in your life, in your relationships, in your work, in your uh, family, in your dating relationships, your friendships, whatever the case may be, what percentage of those problems stem from communication issues? What percentage? One, ten, lots of tens. Regardless of what specific numbers you chose, I, I would bet that we can all agree that communication is foundational to the human experience and, and into the quality of our lives, that our, our relationships and our experience of, of life on this rock we call earth is heavily dependent on our communication, that our, our perception of ourselves and of other people is absolutely dependent on these symbols we call words. And on the tones that we use when, when we say them. And on our body language and facial expressions that, that are portrayed when we say them as well. Words are important. And so we're starting this series. It's all about communication. It's called Words of Wisdom. And this is an interactive series. <laughs> some of you are like, oh no, don't worry. Uh, what that means is out in our lobby, you saw some chalkboards that are up. And we just wanted to give you an opportunity. Uh, if there's some words of wisdom that God has given you, we want to give you an opportunity to share those with us, with the community, the body of people here at, East, at, uh, at uh, Mountain Park. And so you can just write uh, your words of wisdom out there. If you're an artist or a designer, please feel free to do a cool design of, of what wisdom or words of wisdom might mean to you. Uh, but we're doing this series because words matter. They have a huge impact on our life, and God knows that. God knows how important communication is, and he knows how significantly it affects us. So he gives us, if you've never noticed, so many times in the Bible, he gives us very clear guidance about communication. Very specific. He talks throughout the Bible about what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and who to say it to. In fact, if you read the Bible, I don't think it's as much of a stretch to say that one of our primary callings as followers of Jesus is to communicate well. Now, one of our primary callings as followers of Jesus is to communicate well. And if we follow God's guidance, we should be some of the best communicators out there. And I'm not talking about speaking in front of large crowds. I'm talking about interpersonal, everyday communication in our relationships. In fact, we believe this so strongly. We believe that communication is an essential part of discipleship. And we believe it so much that we actually incorporated it into our discipleship language. So if you have one of the journals that Dwayne was talking about, if you open it up in the first couple pages, there's, there's something that says the nine, role, nine essential roles. And, and what happened was we, we, um, a phrase we talk about here is, is realizing our role in God's story, that we want to be a, a body of people who, who realize our role in God's story. And so a couple years ago, we, we thought, okay, what does it mean to realize in our, our role in God's story? What is our role in God's story? Do we have multiple roles in God's story? And we, so we seek uh, the Lord, we 
prayed, we, we read scripture, and we, we, we sort of broke it down into nine essential roles. And you'll see them up there, and you'll see patient, follower, and then there, number five is what? Truth teller. That we as followers of Jesus should be people who communicate well. We should be truth tellers who tell the truth about God, about ourselves, and about other people. By the way, if you don't have one of those journals, I encourage you to pick one up. We're about halfway through them, so we uh, cut the price in half. You can pick it up for $5 at the cafe. Um, and again, that cost just goes to cover the cost of printing. So maybe uh, you're thinking words of wisdom. Okay, so that means we're gonna come in, we're gonna hear words of wisdom. But actually what we're talking about is how do we make sure that as followers of Jesus, we communicate wisely? If we're called to be truth tellers and called to communicate well, how do we make sure that we communicate with wisdom in every situation we might encounter? And that's what we're gonna spend some time on the next few weeks. What does it mean for us to be a truth teller? The good news is Jesus gives us very practical advice for, the, for, for situations, and so is we're going to look at, but before we do, we're going to be in Matthew 18, by the way, so if you, wanna, if you have a Bible here, you want to open it to Matthew 18, that'd be great. Uh, I want to take some time to pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity today to examine your word, to come to you, and to, to, to listen to you. And Lord, we lay ourselves down and open our hearts and minds to you. And Lord, I personally want to come to you and say, Lord, would you have all authority? I am your servant. Would you speak and would you lead, God? You have a plan and a purpose for each one here. And would you accomplish that purpose? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So uh, I want to start just by giving a little bit of context in Matthew 18. We're going to jump in verse 15, but in the beginning in verse 1, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. The disciples come to him and ask him a question about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on and he has this, this monologue with them. And what we're going to be talking about is in this, in this, starting in Matthew 18, 15, is, is one section in the middle of that dialogue. So let's jump in. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault. How many of you are uncomfortable already? <laughs> Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Aren't you so glad you came today? We get to talk about conflict, not just conflict, but conflict when there's sin involved. And I have to say, I love that Jesus says this. I love that Jesus is standing there and he looks on his disciples who he loves dearly. These, these folks who have left their homes and their families to come follow him and they've walked with him, they've seen him do miracles, they've done life with him and he looks at them and he knows that one day they're gonna be leading the church and he says, you are going to mess up. I know that you're going to mess up. You're going to hurt each other. You're going to sin against each other. You're going to lie. You're going to steal. You're going to do wrong things. So let me tell you right now how to deal with it because you aren't going to figure it out on your own. And he does. He tells them exactly what to do. 
And I would summarize this by saying, Jesus says this, followers of Jesus, my followers, will care enough to clearly and compassionately confront each other's sin. That's what he says, that, that followers of Jesus, my followers, will care, my, not my own, Jesus' followers, will care enough to clearly and compassionately confront each other's sin. Now, people will uh, often refer to the principles that Jesus then outlays the steps as the Matthew 18 principle. And it's great. It's a great handle. It's a great way to talk about it, to be able to say, hey, I need to have a Matthew 18 conversation with someone. But there's a little bit of danger there in, in calling it a principle, because I want to point out that what Jesus says here is not just a principle, it's a command. That in Matthew 18, 15, when he says go, it is a specific command to take action. It's written in the imperative tense, in the imperative mood. It's telling us that we actually are, are called to go do something. It's one of the most clearest and most practical commands there is. I mean, he lays it out really clearly. If this, someone sins, this is what you do. But even though this, this command is clear, I feel like it's one that, that we don't think about very often, if we're honest. Like, if you're ever in a gathering of people, and you're like, hey, let's, let's list some sins. Because that's a party game, right? right? What, what are some sins and people, when people think about, or people talk, or let's talk about the commands of Jesus. You list the commands of Jesus, you think what? Love God, love others, be forgiving, be kind, be generous to the poor. I've never had someone come to me and say, Jan, I need to confess a sin to you. I'm really not confronting other people the way that I should. Would you please pray that for me? No one's ever done that. We tend to see this as a suggestion of Jesus rather than a command of Jesus. We need to treat this command with as much reverence as we do his other commands, as much as we treat his commands to care for the poor or to tell the truth. Jesus gives us a clear pathway for responding when someone mistreats us, and if we don't follow that pathway, we ourselves are disobeying his commands. I found, though, that, that, that even the most mature believers will often struggle with this because it is so not natural for us. This is not our natural response when someone sins, especially when someone sins against us, that our natural response to conflict is one of two things, avoid or attack, right? Now, if you're an avoider, you know exactly who you are because you want to leave this room right now. You're sitting there thinking of all these people that you might have to confront saying, oh dear Lord, please no. I don't want to have to do that, right? And I, and I get that, I, I get that. It's often uncomfortable to, to confront people, especially in this day and age. And, and the, 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 the phrase when I talk to avoiders, that, that, they, that they say a lot, avoiders will say, uh, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't want them to think that, that I'm judgmental or mean. And I get it because we live in an age where simply calling something a sin is considered by some people to be an act of hate. We live in an age where just saying that there's such a thing as right and wrong causes someone to say, you're being judgmental and mean and hateful. And so we say, well, I need to be compassionate and understanding. I don't want to come across as judgmental. And it sounds so nice when we say it that way, doesn't it? It sounds so compassionate. But really, if we're honest, uh, 
about what's really in our heart, often what we're really saying is, I want people to like me. And the idea of someone having a negative thought about me makes me really uncomfortable. And I care more about my image or my reputation than I too about the reputation of Jesus. The avoider approaches situations where people sin by saying, sure, what they're doing isn't that great. They shouldn't really do that. But I don't want to risk our relationship. I don't want to risk my reputation. And we put that person's relationship with us ahead of their relationship with Jesus, the one who loves them the most. And then we settle for shallow relationships, shallow relationships where we never dig in and have difficult, deep conversations and get to know what a person is really like and let them get to see what we are really like. Or worse, we settle for hypocritical relationships where we talk about them one way when we're there, but when they're there, but when they're not there, we have a whole different dialogue about who they are, a whole different monologue running in our head. So if you're here and you're a voider, I want you to give us, I want to give you a scripture for you to think about. It's Psalm 62:7. And if you're a voider, I encourage you to write this down, memorize this, and think about this. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. As a follower of Jesus, you can depend on God for your honor and your reputation. Now, attackers, those of you who lean attackers, you're totally different. You're not afraid of conflict. You love it. You respond to every Facebook post that you disagree with, right? You, you read books, and when there's a book that you disagree with, you write in the margin, no, not true, Right? You like to get in there and you like to wrangle and when someone does something wrong, you make sure they know they've done something wrong. You're not really worried about your reputation or your relationship. Your driving motivation is they need to know that they are wrong and it's my job to make sure they know it. It's my responsibility. Don't you see I have to make sure they know. For an attacker, being a truth teller means being the righteous judge whose calling it is to point out the errors of other people. The attacker approaches situations where someone sins by saying, I'm going to force this conversation because they need to know how bad they are or how bad their sin is. But that sounds really mean, so we don't ever say it that way. Right? Attackers don't actually say it that way. What, they, what attackers say is we say, well, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice my relationship with them if it will help them see what is really true. Or, you know what, I, I don't, I, I, I'm courageous. I don't care what they think about me. My job is just to tell them what's true. And attackers use truth teller as a way to justify our addiction to criticizing other people. And as a result, we leave behind us a slew of broken relationships. Now, uh, just a real quick side note here. Attackers tend to be the ones who are most self-deceived. Just being really honest, attackers most often are the ones who don't realize that they're attackers. They tend to hide behind, I'm just telling the truth. And so that's when the people around them need to come to them and say, hey, you may not realize this about yourself. And let me give you a verse to share with them. And attackers, this is a verse for you to memorize and think about. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 1. And it's probably familiar to some of you. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, 
but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If people are running away from you, covering their ears, that's a sign you're doing it wrong. Okay? There's a third option, though. We don't have to be an avoider. We don't have to be an attacker. We can be a genuine truth-tellers. Truth-tellers who clearly and compassionately confront each other's sins. This is Jesus' approach. And in order to understand, I want to look at, at what is Jesus' motivation? What is his ultimate goal for these confrontations? And what is his approach to sin? Because that's what the center of, at the center of this whole situation so we're going to read Matthew 18, 6 to 9. It tells us, this is actually just a few scriptures before uh, Matthew, the, the verses we're in. He says this, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, to sin, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I think Jesus is being unclear. I wish he'd be more forthright about how he feels. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. There are knives out in the lobby. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. What is going on here? Here's the thing. Jesus is zealous, absolutely zealous about eradicating sin from our lives. Jesus is zealous about eradicating sin from our lives. Why? Because he loves us. See, sin is not just an action. It's not just a breaking of an arbitrary moral code. Sin is rejecting God's loving authority in our lives. Sin is saying, God, I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I don't trust that you love me enough to tell me what's best for me. I don't want to rely on your love. I want to rely on my love for myself. I can handle it. And when we sin, we step outside of God's loving design for our lives. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In another translation, it says abundant life. Every command of Jesus is there to give us abundant life. In another passage, Jesus says, the greatest commandments are love God and love others. And every commandment hangs on these. That every command Jesus gives is a command designed to help us love. And so when we sin, we step outside of love. We step outside of the abundant life that God has for us. And Jesus cares deeply about that. In the midst of enjoying and celebrating the forgiveness of God, we must never allow that to become tolerance for sin. Jesus is zealous about eradicating sin from our life because he loves us. It's also because he loves others. And he knows that our sins hurt other people. Confronting others, confronting people in sin isn't just about us. It's also about the others that their sin may impact. Never make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' love for you means he doesn't care about your sin. Jesus forgives your sin and he wants to free you from sin. Uh, my wife and I, 
we have some kids, and uh, with every one of our kids, we found that our kids have a magnetic attraction to the street. They reach an age where the street is the most popular place to be, and they want to go there. And so we have a rule. Don't go in the street. Why? Because we love our kids and we want our kids to have life. And so we are absolutely zealous about that rule. We are absolutely zealous about enforcing that rule, about hammering that rule on our kids because we love them and we want them to have life. Jesus has the same attitude. Let's read on though. It doesn't stop there. Matthew it goes on, 18, 12 to 14. What do you think of a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for that one who wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus says, I care about each individual. Yes, I want sin to be eliminated from your life, but I care passionately about you. I will run after you. I will chase after you. I will chase you down. Because Jesus' motivation is not condemnation, it's compassion. He knows that when that sheep is lost, it's in danger. And his ultimate goal isn't revenge, but restoration. Jesus' motivation in confronting people and, and our motivation in confrontation should not be condemnation but compassion and not revenge but restoration. And we need to view Matthew 18, 15 and on this whole process through that lens. So let's look at that process. I'll break it down. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins. So that word brother or sister is actually the word Adelphos. There's a few things going on. One is it's referring to another believer. Okay, it's referring to someone who shares the same beliefs about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. This is not unbelievers. This is not permission for you to go around finding every unbeliever who has a different belief than you and condemning them and saying, let me point out to you the errors of your ways. Okay, Jesus isn't calling us to expect godly behavior from people who don't believe or follow the same God that we do. It's okay to confront people who are not believers. There may be times when we're called to do that, but that's not Jesus's command here. Jesus's command is to confront believers. Number two, it refers to someone you know. Okay, this term brother is a believer and someone you know, someone you have some kind of relationship with. You don't have to be besties, but this is not that Christian blogger who you disagree with and have never met, and so you wanna let them know how wrong they are, okay? Again, it's not someone on Facebook you don't know. It's not a pastor you've never met. You watch their sermons online and you want to let them know that they made a mistake. Okay, that's not this. This is someone. And it's not someone you've met for the first time. This is not how you begin relationships. Okay? It's not, oh, I've met you. It's nice to meet you. Oh, let me tell you about the 10 sins I've noticed in the first 10 minutes I've noticed you. Okay, that's not where we start. Okay, this is in the context of relationship. I think Jesus uses this word for another reason, not just because he wants us to know it's with believers and not just because he wants us to know with people we know, but because he wants to remind us that even when someone sins, they're still our brother. Because when we get into conflict, we tend to think of it as a competition. In a competition, there's a winner and a loser. There's my team and your team. And Jesus says, no, it's not a competition. They're always on your team. 
This is not about defeating them. It's not about defeating an enemy. It's about walking alongside a brother. And this is true even if their sin is directly against you. In some translations of the Bible, it says, if your brother or sister sins against you. That's because in some of the earliest manuscripts we have, some of them have against you, some of them don't. Both apply. Both are applicable. I like the against you because it reminds us that this is personal. And it's when someone sins against us that we're most likely to go rogue or when someone sins against our kids. That's the other time. That's when we're most likely to go rogue and do our own thing, right? And this reminds us, no, even if they sin against you, you are still their brother. But also, we can use the against you as an excuse. You know someone who's going around cheating on their spouse. Well, that's not a sin against me. It's not a sin against me that they're doing that, so I don't need to confront them. Our calling as truth tellers is to clearly and compassionately confront each other's sins and turn the page. If your brother or sister sins, so again, when we're talking, when we talk about sin, we're talking about when someone steps outside of God's love by making a decision that is contrary to God's will as revealed in the Bible. Now, sin is when someone steps out of sight of God's love by making a decision that is contrary to God's will as revealed in the Bible. This is lying, slander, gossip, stealing, malice, harboring ill will towards someone, rudeness, racism, disobeying authorities, unforgiveness, drunkenness, rage. It changes your methods when you realize the ultimate goal, though, is to restore them to Jesus' love. This, by the way, is not when your brother or sister hurts your feelings. It can apply then, and if someone does hurt you, it's okay to go and wanna have that conversation. But Jesus isn't commanding every time your feelings hurt, you go and tell that person, you hurt my feelings. And if you don't agree that you hurt my feelings, now I'm gonna get some other people and tell them that you hurt my feelings. And if you still don't listen, then I'm gonna go to the whole church and tell the whole church that you hurt my feelings. Okay, that's not the command that Jesus is giving here. There are times when our feelings are hurt and it wasn't a sin. Shocker. Sometimes our feelings are hurt and the other person did not sin against us. Don't get those two things confused. Don't make the state mistake of moralizing every decision you disagree with. You didn't get a job that you wanted. It's easy to say, well, that's because they this, they're that, they're this. Be careful of that. It's not about your feelings. If you're gonna confront someone, you should be clear about what the sin is. Go to them. Who does the going? You do. You go. You don't wait. You go to them. We don't like to talk with people. We like to talk about people. It's so much more fun to talk about someone. We like talking. We get a little bit of a rush when we talk about people behind their back. We don't like to admit that, but it's true, isn't it? That when we, when we are sitting with this group of people talking about that person, it makes us feel good. Like we've got some allies on our side. They understand us. They understand how we feel. They validate our story. It makes us feel good. Followers of Jesus don't do that. Followers of Jesus go directly to the source. I'm not gonna talk about someone. I'm gonna talk to them. Leviticus 19.17, which most scholars think Jesus is referring to a little bit when he talks here. It says, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. 
when you don't confront someone, when you don't talk about it, you harbor hate and bitterness in their, your heart. And that, that conflict, that, that, that hurt colors the way you view them. And when you don't confront them, you then share in the guilt of their sin. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Not condemn, not punish, not belittle, not insult. Point out their fault. Be specific. Here is the specific behavior. If your brother or sister sins against you, go point out their fault just between the two of you privately. Now, there may be some exceptions. If you're going to confront someone and you need help, you're trying to figure out what to say, to call someone and say, hey, I want you to pray for me and help me and then hold me accountable to having this conversation and call me up at the end of the conversation and ask me how it went. Now, you might be thinking, um, you know, what if I'm not sure? What if I'm not sure that they're a believer? I'm not sure I know them well enough. What if I'm not sure it's a sin? Err on the side of compassionate confrontation. Err on the side of Jesus' desire for them is to have no sin in their life. Jesus' desire for them is to be fully surrendered, to fully experience the abundant life. And it never hurts to have that conversation to say, I want to have the kind of relationship with you where we can say difficult things, where I'm gonna listen to you and you're gonna listen to me And we're gonna get to know each other's hearts. I I wanna be a safe place where we can have that kind of conversation. Alan and I meet on a regular basis and talk about a lot of different things. And recently we were meeting and near the end of the meeting, he looked at me and he said, Alan's our senior pastor, by the way. And he looked at me and he said, Jan, I've noticed that you've been staying late at work recently. Is that because you're trying to avoid your family? Is that because you're trying to avoid your responsibility as a husband and a father? Now, some of you are thinking, I hope my boss never asked me that question. I love that my boss asked me that question. I love it. I love that I have a senior pastor who cares about whether or not I'm mistreating my family. That he cares about my wife and kids enough to say, if this is an issue, I'm not going to let it continue. We need to be having those kinds of relationships with people. And most of the time, when you have that conversation, they'll listen. But there will be times when they don't. Jesus talks about that. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay? This is someone who says, do not listen, and later it uses the phrase, refuse to listen. This is someone who says, la, 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 la. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So then you take two witnesses. They're there for your protection so that they can verify what you're doing and that there's clear communication. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. This is not a gossip fest. This is not in the church grapevine. This is saying we want to bring the body of believers to be involved to help this person turn away and embrace the love Jesus has for them in their lives. If they still refuse to listen, tell the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. He was insulted because of how well he treated them. In fact, the tax collector is the one who's actually writing this. This is in the book of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. 
He's the one writing this, okay? Treating them like a pagan or a tax collector doesn't mean abusing them. It means acknowledging they're on a different page. It means changing your expectations. It means, okay, they no, I no longer expect them to have godly behavior because they don't follow the same God that I do. So I can change my expectations because of that. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be truth tellers and truth tellers care enough to clearly and compassionately confront each other's sins. And I know this is hard. I know this is hard, but I want you to know that the consequences of not doing it are worse. Several years ago, I had a friend, this group of friends that I've been friends with for a long time. And um, one of these friends is a friend of mine who's, I'll use the name Rob. And, and, and when I came to Christ, uh, Rob uh, gave his life to Christ as well shortly thereafter. And we became really good friends and it was a really great relationship. And, and, and as we got to know each other, we prayed for each other. And he started dating this young lady named Dana and, 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 and they got engaged. Well, uh, about a month or so before I was moving away, another friend of ours who'd been a mutual friend for several years, Amy, came to me and said, Jan, I need to tell you something. Rob and I have been sleeping together for the past four years. Never in a relationship, n- n- never anything romantic. We just, we, we just have consistently, when we've both been dating other people, we, when we come together, we just, we consistently sleep together and we can't stop. Amy was not a believer, not a follower of Jesus at all, but she looked at Rob's relationship with Dana and said, I'm ruining that, but I can't stop. So Jan, would you please help me? I had been a believer for six months. I had never read this. And I'm going, what in the world do I do? So I prayed. I said, God, what do you want me to do? Not long after, I was in the car with Rob. We were driving, about a two-hour drive. And he turns to me and he says, Jan, I want you to know that you're one of my best friends. And if there's ever anything you need to tell me, I want you to know you can tell me. 30 seconds later, we were pulled over to the side of the freeway and he was openly crying and taking responsibility for everything that he had done and a week after that, he was sitting with his fiancée, telling her everything he had did. What would have happened if Amy had never come to me? What would have happened if I had said, my, my relationship with Rob is too important for me to, to talk to him about this? What he would say and what he has said to me is that he would still be carrying on an adulterous affair to this day. The consequences of not following Jesus' command in this are much more difficult than actually following them. The band's gonna play a song and I want to give you some time to respond to what God is saying to you. Maybe God is putting someone on your heart you need to talk about. Maybe God is talking to you about some sin in your life. But God is speaking right now and I wanna give you some time to commune with him, to do business with him, to listen to him. So they're gonna play, interact with the Lord as they play, listen to this song. And then I'm gonna come back up. I'll pray for us and do one more thing before we go. Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart, that you would help us to reflect your heart, to have the heart of truth tellers. 
motivated by compassion and restoration and love. We ask this in your name. Amen. Some of you are wondering, uh, this is really great, but what, what, how, what do we practically actually say? What, what words do we actually use? You, you've got some confrontations, maybe you need to have, you're not sure what to say. Next week, Alan is gonna give us some practical uh, tips on things, so come join us next week. And we're gonna have a prayer team down here, so if you want someone to pray for you, they would love the opportunity to pray for you. Thank you guys for coming, and we'll see you next Sunday.